Welcome to the Creative City Network of Canada podcast mini-series where we explore the topics and conversations that connect and support cultural leadership, celebrate cultural excellence and nurture cultural development in local communities throughout Canada. I'm your host, Anita Latham. Today we welcome Ken Loon, current Chair of the Fine Arts at the University of Pennsylvania Weizmann School of Design in Philadelphia. Ken is an internationally recognised artist and curator, a Guggenheim Fellow and an Officer of the Order of Canada. Since the mid-1990s, Ken has worked on several permanent public art commissions, as well as a number of temporary public art commissions in many cities across the globe. He has an impressive record of curatorial projects and is a co-founder and chief curatorial advisor for the Monument Lab, a public art and History Collective that recently won a $4 million Mellon Foundation grant. Welcome, Ken. Well, it's pleased to be here. It's lovely to have you join us. What an what a impressive record. And um, tell us a little bit about your journey as an artist and, and the developing of your career. I've kind of given it a very summary in the introduction well i think my journey probably started when i was a kid but i'm not going to belabor the audience (laughs) by telling every detail of my biography but i do think um you know art in whatever form touched me when i was very young i i had a disposition for drawing I, i i could always draw even to this day but i didn't know anything about the art system i didn't know anything about contemporary art and in yeah uh, I didn't know that it was possible to um, have a career as, an, as a contemporary artist, right? Oh, right. But, right, and so I, I, I went into science when I was an undergraduate and, yeah. um, and thought that was basically my, my, my destiny. And, uh, but uh, mercifully, I, I discovered um, art in my senior year of undergraduate and, and uh, it, was, was not, it didn't conform to anything I had, had yeah. thought it was. I thought, all my peers couldn't draw a horse and I could draw a horse and I didn't understand why they wanted to be an artist. And then I realized there, there was a logic to it and uh, I became very fascinated by it. And um, I, I made a fateful decision one day just to leave my science, despite my f- four and a half years of investment in it, yeah. education one. Yeah. And, uh, and then moved to New York in short order and tried, uh, tried to learn as much about the art system as, as possible. Yeah. Oh, that is really exciting. Thank you for introduce, introducing that uh, sh- snapshot of your history. You know, people are always asking when I interview people, oh, I didn't hear more about them. I didn't hear more about them. And, um, uh, you know, I, as well as others, are, are very glad you gave up your science career and went into the arts. Um, in relation to your work, your work often speaks to the narrative of immigration, uh, meeting nationalities, coming to new lands, um, all of which you know can connect us to that concept of resiliency. And at the CCNC's theme for 2020, um, as well as the core for the coming Creative City Summit, is around that concept of resiliency. Um, do you have any insights on? you know, how to balance the current sense of urgency that everyone's feeling with producing meaningful, thoughtful art and connecting that to the concept of resiliency. I've always uh, 
been driven by urgency. Yeah. You know, it, well, well, prior to this moment of reckoning. Yes. But, but having said that, I also think, um, you know, there's there's not a singular response to this moment. It doesn't, you know, if you're an artist, it doesn't mean it, it, that you, you you stop making art because you're making abstract art or some kind of art that may not yeah. be so uh, apparently uh, connected to this moment of social reckoning. Right, you should continue making that art, right? Yeah, because it is a statement of your freedom and 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 and, uh, and your pleasure. Uh, but I do think um, you can have parallel tracks of engagement. Like some artists will make work that is uh, is is adjusted to uh, a political environment, yeah. and then they'll they'll make uh, on another track a career of art that is destined for galleries and museums and so on. Yeah. You, don't, you don't actually have to slot, you know, the work you do for the museums or or make it contort so it fits into the current moment. There's many, many different strategies. One thing you do need to is to be politically alert and 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 to be nimble yeah. and to be and to be curious about how to become engaged, right? But there's no singular uh, strategy for for an artist. I mean, I started Monument Lab because I was questioning the uh, disequilibrium that I saw in terms of the um, statuary and official inventory of monuments in in various cities. And I yeah. and uh, out of that curiosity, I started writing uh, essays about uh, th that very question, right? Yeah. And which you know is a reflection of power, right? When, when you look study the statue of a city, most cities. Certainly, they would be white male statues. Most of the yeah. inventory would be that. Very few women, unless they're an angel or a muse or something like that. Yeah. And even fewer of people of color, right? Yeah. And cer certainly very few of, of the people who were truly subjugated, right? Yeah. So, and uh, I started that, but I never saw that as, as my artwork. I saw that as, uh, as a testament to my engagement in, in the larger field of politics and social change. Yeah. I want to kind of pick up on the um, Monument Lab stuff for a moment. Um, and you co-founded that in 2012. And, you know, when the current, what we've seen over the current year is um, the toppling of statues and monuments um, that has become kind of the focal point at the height of the BLM movement this year. Um, and as a result of that, Monument Lab has become on the forefront of that movement in some way. What has that been like to see that happen and do that journey? Obviously, it's gratifying. It's surprising to the extent that when I co-founded Monument Lab with uh, my colleague Paul Farber at the University of Pennsylvania, yeah, we both thought that you know this is a, we're very late to the game in terms of questioning this. Uh, this disequilibrium uh, I mentioned in terms of the hierarchy of monuments. Yeah. But it turned out that um, we weren't late to the game. We were just we were just uh, the first to really formalize it as as an object of um, concentrated study. There's been yeah. no entity that's been formulated uh, to respond to that. People have obviously uh, you know written. There's been academic papers written about. You know how monuments are a reflection of uh, of power of uh, perpetuating social injustice and and all that, but no real um, entity in place where people can actually go to to have a dialogue about about these questions. And so it's been incredibly gratifying. I mean, we started just in my office at, at University of Pennsylvania in 2012, and now 
now we have a budget of uh, you know well over five million a yeah. year and um, US and uh, and we have uh, you know perhaps two dozen people working yeah. with us students right and we're working uh, we're, we've got projects in uh, across the ocean as well in in Munich and in um, in uh, uh, Rotterdam and yeah. uh, Antwerp several uh, European cities as well as throughout uh, North America yeah I mean this whole conversation around uh, monuments has been really interesting and both from a positive and a negative perspective and you know there was a bit of a dialogue um, I was in New Zealand uh, over the summer and there was a little bit of a dialogue around protecting some of the monuments because of they were still related historically to you know founding fathers and all of that kind of stuff in relation to monuments um can you talk about how you feel about how they you know whether you feel like they become part of gathering a gathering point and illustrations of you know a civic protest or a civic identity you know kind of where do they fit in that narrative from your perspective well for, first of all we have to um look at what how a monument uh, is defined currently yeah it, it there's a, there's a fiction that's a, a theater let's say that is inscribed by the monument the yeah. monument uh purports to be uh consensually derived yeah. when in fact it's highly highly selective in terms of who it truly speaks for yeah and who it truly really represents in terms of interests right and also that the values that it's it, it is imbued with is somehow universal and eternal that's actually kind of a fiction because we know that when every time a monument is is toppled, we realize it's just hollow inside. It's it's you know ninety yeah. percent copper that goes into in, into bronze. Yeah. Right? That even the idea of permanence is a fiction because it's expensive to maintain that permanence. You have to clean it twice a year. Yeah. You have to have administration in terms of you know desalting it, uh, making sure the weep holes of its bronze are are, yes. are porous. And so on. The, the, the veneer of newness is maintained uh, by a lot of muscle and capital. Yeah. Yes. And so yeah. on. So, you know, monuments uh, are kind of a fiction, but yeah. right, they often do speak truth to power. And that's what makes it a little bit complicated. And that's why Monument Lab is very interested in the complexities of that question. Yeah. Right? Because, if, for example, you can take uh, the, in Pretoria in South Africa, there's the Vortrechter uh, monument. Yes. It's a gigantic building, gigantic, and it extols the, you know, the kind of Afrikaans journey to the Transvaal, right? And inside yeah. there are marble friezes of, you know, vicious Zulus raping white women, yeah. right? And then deserving to be shot to death. It's a horrible freeze, yeah. right? And so on. And in a way, it does speak truth to power, at least historically, before apartheid, right? Yeah. And I think that question makes it important to for people to at least reflect upon what is being lost if 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 uh if they just are automatically taken down without questioning without a kind yeah. of examination yeah so i think that's a really interesting point and especially for a lot of our listeners who you know are uh, municipal cultural workers and you know thinking about this moving forward in relation to rethinking the statues and monuments that they have in their cities and um, you know when when you're thinking about 
what needs to be changed or considered in this process? You know, what kind of guidance would you give them in that kind of thinking process that they're doing? Well, the first thing I would do is, um, is, 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 well, first of all, I would separate out certain things. Like, for example, the grievous example of Confederate monuments in the yeah. United States, which is, you know, uh, uh, occupying a lot of the uh, concerns in, in the United States regarding monuments. Most of, almost all of them, I think, deserve to be taken down because they were, they were uh, you know, erected in, in, by and large in the 20th century, well after the uh, end of the Civil War. Yeah. Um, they were put in front of um, uh, courtyards, I mean, court, courthouses, yeah. and so on deliberately. And to signal that you know uh, this lost cause of the Confederacy is a, is a noble history, when in fact the lost cause, which is premised on the idea that the, the South was really about protecting the uh, the rights of the slave, and yeah. that they were very gentle to uh, African Americans, and that it was a, a very particular uh, a way of life that even the African American slave actually enjoyed, right? Yeah. So it's totally yeah. total fiction. And so they deserve to come down. But even, but I would say generally that I don't think most statues should just come down automatically without some dialogue or yeah. some creative response by thinkers, by members of the public, by yeah. artists, by creative types um, regarding a res even a kind of aesthetic response to the work, first of yeah. all. I, because I think there's a danger of that is a problematic statue. We should take it down. And then there's no more dialogue. And the yeah. disinterest is observed. I think yeah. the dialogue is critical. Yeah, and thank you. That I mean, it's, it's a really good thinking point for people because, like you say, just taking something down for the sake of taking it down is not always the solution. Um, and sometimes there's power in uh, the statement of a piece of public work um, which is absolutely extraordinary. Uh, yourself, you've worked on with several municipalities installing pieces of public work. Uh, what's that experience been like? Very uneven. It depends on what city. If it's in <laughs> Europe, if it's in Europe, by and large, it's a joy. Yeah. Uh, because there's a level of um, it sounds almost condescending to say, it, but it's <laughs> to, to but there's a level of uh, acculturation and valuing yeah. of art. Yes. Uh, by the public at large, uh, which makes things easier. So yeah. when I did a, a, a large work in uh, Vienna, which is permanent, um, in Austria, um, yeah. I remember uh, approaching the uh, city and I said, um, you know, I know I, I, I said I would present this work, but as I was making the work, I said I, I wanted to alter it and because, and, and, you know, and I know that that wouldn't be disallowed if I did it in North America. Yeah. And, and so I, I, I said, what do you think? And they, and they said, sure, go ahead. And I said, yeah, but it's, it would cost um, a bit more. It would probably cost like around 20,000 euros more. <laughs> I don't really have that in my budget, right? Yeah. And then they came back to me very quickly and said, well, if it's really important to you, we want the best work and uh, we will cover it, right? So, yeah. <laughs> that's, but that's more, that's more Europe. Yeah. In North America, and you don't have to uh, be bogged down by administration. You don't have to worry about, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, finding a team, an engineer, a lawyer, uh, yeah. an, an insurer, right? Everything is on the artists in, in North America, but in uh, Austria, in uh, Europe, 
it's um, they say, okay, we'll, we'll go and look for the team for you and you can interview them and, yeah. and we'll take care of all the things. And you just, you just concentrate on your idea. Yeah. Very different. Would you say one's more freeing than the other from an artist's perspective? Artist's yeah, of perspective? course. In Europe, it's much more freeing. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and uh, and it also depends on the um, the circumstance. Generally, I don't really do commissions for um, private development. Yeah, you know, um, unless I really feel strongly about an idea and and I have a good uh, relationship or I know something about the people involved and so on. Yeah, but generally, I, I it's not I don't have a a blanket um, you know rule that I don't work with private yeah. development. It's just a I, it's just as it's often more compromising because you know there's expectations to satisfy the would be condo owners or yeah. you know, the, the developer and so on. So, yeah, you know, but, but working in a public context is generally more rewarding. Yeah. So, would you, um, in relation to public spaces and the current pandemic that we're going through, you know, which is, um, you know, another big, huge stop point in everybody's lives. Um, how do you feel that public spaces have changed since the start of the pandemic? Well, I think um, we realize there aren't that much public space. I, I have to go back to like uh, Occupy Wall Street, you know, yeah. which is right. And, and um, that offered a lesson in terms of what was the true public space. Bowling yeah. Green Park was the, was the public park where people occupied, uh, protesters occupied. But that was a public park that was closed after about 9 p.m. at night. And yeah. so the police came in and said, you're, you're kicked out. And so they occupied Sukato Park, which is only about half a block further south. And that was a private park. That was yeah. a private park put up as amenity by private development. And um, yeah. right, so we live in a world which is a little bit topsy-turvy in the sense that, you know, it's not so clear what is a true public space and what is a true um, private space yeah. as well. Right, so um, I think um, one of the lessons that uh, uh, that the, that uh, you know the COVID nineteen has has brought to bear is just how unequal access is to public amenities. Yeah, right? and and so on. And uh, people, I mean, I have a backyard, right? But I know some people who don't have a backyard. Yeah, I, have, I know some people who uh, live in very close quarters. Right, so I'm lucky. Right. I live in the suburbs of Philadelphia and, uh, you know, I can walk around and, and you know, feel relatively protected and safe. We, we kind of give over public space to, uh, we, first of all, we question, um, at least in America, question the value of public funding for anything. Yes. Right? The, the whole goal is about the reduction of government yeah. right? and, and, uh, and the elimination of public taxes. COVID-19, for example, in um, the United States is so, so much worse, not just because people uh, don't have any sense of a, a collective good, yeah. but also because of, uh, you know, the system of uh, private medicine. Yes, There's no yeah. universal health care. And so there was no incentive to, to in place to build a structure that was uh, of medical care that was collectively addressed and, and that could be nimble for a collective number of people as opposed to individuals yeah right? so that this kind of lopsided um attention and in and, and capital invested in you know cosmetic surgery and all kinds of voluntary surgery where where much of the money was made by by doctors yeah and so on 
it's crazy. So yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting. It's 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 uh, as you've mentioned. You know, COVID's having this really interesting wave of effect on a lot of us in a lot of different ways. And um, one of the things that I noticed in uh, I was in New Zealand during the New Zealand lockdown. Um, and one of the things that I noticed in New Zealand is the way we used our public spaces a little bit differently. And, you know, but one of the interesting things was um, there was a park just down the road from where my mum lives. And we walked every day, my mum and I, and the amount of people who kept their distance from each other, but still said hello. Um, and then there was an artist who came and did a chalk piece of chalk art on the footpaths and people really protected it and really engaged with it and um it rained one night and someone had come out and covered it and you know we don't know whether it was the artist or not but the use of those spaces was really interesting and we engaged more with each other and then obviously the lockdown lifted in new zealand and we're still walking around the park and suddenly people aren't saying hello to each other anymore and they were kind of going about their business of walking their dog or, you know, the, the use of public spaces beyond the lockdown in New Zealand um, kind of changed and, and went back to this odd thing and we weren't sure to say whether we should engage with the people we'd engaged with during the pandemic. You know, from your perspective, do you think there's been a morph and a change in our public spaces that's going to go beyond the pandemic, like in, in the American arena that you're currently in? I hope so, but I'm sceptical. I mean, yeah. I think I think in cities like New York or San Francisco where there's a lot of money, a lot of uh, prestige, even among the uh, oligarchs that run those cities to, you know, put their own money and put their own names yeah. into this kind of semi-privatized sponsoring of all kinds of amenities. I think that's, that, that will probably happen, right? So in, in New York, you have Madison Square Park, you have the yeah. uh, Bryant Park, you have all these parks that now have all kinds of public amenities, seating and activities and even art shows. And, and a lot of streets, like for parts of Broadway, is, is basically all entirely pedestrian, right? Yeah, yeah. But, but then you also have cities which are a lot poorer, that are not, at, you know, like these world uh, uh, juggernaut cities yeah. in, in America. And I don't really see much change for any of those cities because, first of all, there's very little um, true uh, public uh, transit for a lot of, uh, of any quality. Yeah. in middle-sized cities in America. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think the whole public space thing is tied to good public transit, good public health, good public education, you know, and, and, and safety, no guns, yeah. you know, and all those types of things, which is just not true in, in a lot of American cities. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. That's, I mean, it's incredibly interesting. You're you're right. It's a different it's a different way of thinking. And it puts a different lens on it. And for yourself as a Canadian artist living and working in the states, um, you know, have you had the opportunity to critically compare the contextually the difference between um, how Canada works with space, and especially through the Monument Lab, how Canada might work with monuments and the way the states is working. You've touched on it a little bit, and the way the states is working out. You know, is there anything that kind of glaringly stands out for you? Yeah. There's, there's amazing 
um, creative responses to to all kinds of problems. And there's 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 also amazing will and celerity to responding and addressing problems, social problems quickly. Yeah. Right? And yeah. Um, and of course, it's not enough. But it is a kind of a paradox, right? So on the one hand, you have kind of you know terrible misery, uh, object, uh, you know, subject subjugation, and so on. And then the, on the other hand, you have amazing kind of resistance and, and response, and very quick. Yeah. In Canada, I think it's I think it's much more toned down. So you may have problems, and the problems don't seem as severe as in the United States, and and in certain respects, it isn't. But yeah. then on the other hand, if you're First Nations, can you say that to a First Nations person that's yeah. not as severe? I would say it's probably just as severe. The converse of that for Canada is that the response, the, kind of the, the you know, movements to try to help people, um, real change, radical change, uh, it, I think comes much more slowly in Canada in, than in the United States, oddly enough. Yeah. Yeah. I think Canada is much more pleasant as a kind of, for the general level of living for most people, I think, right? Whereas in the United States, it's much more Manichian in terms of you have the wealthy, you have the, you know, yes. uh, privilege, and then you have the disadvantage, right? And it's terrible. Yeah. That yeah. Gap. But then on the other hand, you know, when you have movements uh, uh, of social consciousness, they erupt very quickly. And then yes. they become very theorized. They enter into the economies very quickly. Whereas in Canada, it's very slow to enter into the economies. It's very, you know, and the and the will to um, address social problems is at a much more modest scale. Yeah, um, and I th- one of the um, interesting things, and you've tu- you touched on this and what you were saying, um, is the the um, connection for Black, Indigenous, and people of colour, art and artists, and them having access to public art and monument work and um, the lack of representation of, of them as peoples and public art and monument work. I mean, how does a municipal person, you know, working under a structure with a budget and a directive, uh, more often than not, kind of start to think about readdressing that lack of representation in public art and monuments for um, these, you know, people of Black, Indigenous and people of colour and and our First Nations people. You know, there's a term, uh, you know, called de-schooling, where you try to unlearn the things that school teach you. And, and of course, we're, we're in this moment where, there is a, uh, you know, it, let's call it a BIPOC moment, right? Where, yeah. you know, we, we want um, social justice, but we also want it to be registered in terms of the composition of, um, of the people who run a cultural institution yeah. right? or, and so on. So it's not just good enough to, to uh, say you're concerned about these issues, but that people of diversity and difference need to be in positions of real power and yeah. need to be at least in a cultural context where their voice is heard, or at least they, they believe that their voice is valued, right? And so that, there's a lot of work to be done on, on that question because yeah. there's a lot of museums right now that, you know, never visited this question at all in terms of, you know, um, justice and, uh, for the marginalized voice and so on. Yeah. And now all of a sudden, 
everyone's jumping on the bandwagon and, and saying, well, we need to examine ourselves now after like, you know, it's like hundred years of, of not examining it. Yeah. Meanwhile, there were artists of color, artists of, um, and, you know, intellectuals of, of difference and so on have been talking about this for many decades. Yes. Yeah. They all have, I mean, I have all kinds of anecdotes about all kinds of, you know, terrible things that, uh, I've had to, I've had to deal with, especially when I was a younger artist in terms yeah. of, you know, people telling me you shouldn't do this because you're, you're an Asian artist. So why are you doing this? And yeah. so on. these are, these are museums. These are like, uh, star curators. Of yes. major museums. Yeah. Yeah. Wasn't that long ago, and I remember when I started in 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 art, there was a lot of um. I remember meeting a collector, and uh, you know, a very famous collector, and said, "Oh, you know, I thought so and so was a much better artist." And uh, and uh, I said, "Oh, you don't like her anymore?" He goes, "Well, you know, I mean, she went and had a baby, and she, you know, and she devoted her. You know, basically, he was complaining about her serious lack of seriousness because she decided to become a mother." And yeah. take uh, a leave from making art for a while, right? Yeah. And I was seeing a kind of lack of commitment to being an artist, and yet, and I remember thinking that was really strange, and a couple of other people did too. I was just a, a student at the time, yeah. And um, but I also remember quite a few other people nodding their heads. Yeah, it's too bad. Yeah, <laughs> it wasn't that long ago. It was in like late nineteen seventies, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a little bit concerning, isn't it? I mean, why right. So I think uh, you know, I'm I'm a bit skeptical in terms of a lot of um, uh, you know, this, this concern that's being expressed by a lot of institutions nowadays. I, although, yeah. I'm, of course, I support the I support the address of the of these questions, though. And I think um, one of the um, things that I think needs to be addressed and like you I've been involved in the cultural sector for a long time and one of the almost common threads throughout my journey of the last 30 years in the cultural sector has been around uh, the BIPOC affordability of spaces and studios in relation to the economy and um, in relation to real estate and them being an artist access and stuff, you know, what what are your thoughts around that? Well, I, I mean, I support that acknowledgement of that um, uneven playing field. I think one of the big lies about the entire cultural system, not just the art system, but the entire cultural system, is that yeah. you know, if uh, it, that it's somehow based on a talent meritocracy. Yes. You know, right when in when in fact. So, you know, many, it's like the old joke, many people, uh, you know, are born on third base and they think they somehow, you know, were, are fantastic batters. But, you know, the kind of social aspects of, uh, you know, formation is usually not a question that's visited upon, right? We don't, we, we like to suspend that part. Before the pandemic, I would go to New York about two or three times a month taking shows. And, you know, many of the galleries are like humongous now. They're, you know, 8,000 square feet to yeah. six thousand square feet which is the size of a museum basically yes and and yet you kind of think wow look at all that capital that has to go into just doing one show right a show for eight thousand square feet is like a it's a lot of real estate it's a lot of real estate yeah and who can afford that right so you know and uh and uh you know throughout history there's been a lot of um you know just systemic racism and biases against women against people people of color and, and uh, it's not just the odds against them in terms of the art system but in the entire system right so i, I think uh, those questions need to be visited 
Yeah, and and that kind of segues us nicely into that concept of um, uh, global capitalization, which you've been known to, to talk about. Um, and you know, so what are your thoughts are on global uh, capitalization and its effect on that for around Vancouver and on Vancouver? Around Vancouver, well, I haven't been in Vancouver in many years. Talk about it from Philly. Right. What do you well, see? Have, what are you seeing? Well, I mean, kind of I mean Vancouver, Vancouver was, you know, it's, it's obviously blessed by a uh, fantastic um, surroundings. Yeah. Right. But it's also, you know, was somehow won the lottery, I guess, you yeah. know, uh, quotations won won the lottery in terms of uh, where, you know, global capital decides to settle down. I don't think it's permanent, you know, and a lot of people, particularly from, um, uh, you know, uh, wealthier Americans who are retired, um, certainly uh, wealthy uh, Chinese, uh, yeah. many who, who, who started companies that are successful in China, some of them were members of the Communist Party, would end up, uh, you know, having several hundred million dollars somehow in a very short time, and then they yeah. basically... Uh, left China and they became Canadian citizens, yes. right? There's a, there's, well, there was also a kind of obviously social contract with the Canadian government where we're not going to ask ask deeper questions about in terms yeah. of where where that source of money was. Right? Yeah. And, uh, so Canada's invested in this idea of um, of uh, you know capitalized investors, uh, you know. Whereas you know I think you know if that was the case. There is no way that they would have accepted my grandfather. <laughs> because my grandfather <laughs> came without no, without any money. Yeah. Right? I yeah. also feel that you know my mother worked in a sweatshop. My father worked in various cafes in in, in the city. My my grandfather worked on a CPR. One of the yeah. last work on. He also worked on the building of the second hotel Vancouver. Yeah. You know. So I feel like even in terms of my own family, we've we contributed a lot to to Canada. Yeah, right? and yet, and yet we wouldn't qualify to, uh, uh, based on the uh, new rules of uh, immigration, right? We wouldn't we wouldn't be at the front of the line. We'd be way at the back of the queue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when you expand it out globally, um, I think it's it's becoming interesting in relation. I mean, Auckland, to... Auckland's the same as like Vancouver. Yeah, yeah, very much so. There, yeah. Right. So and yeah. uh, Sydney as well. Sydney, you know. very much so, and I'm, you know, I uh, have had the opportunity to live and work in Sydney, and you know, it's definitely a, it focuses externally, you know, Sydney. When you when you're in Sydney, the conversation is about the relationship you're having with Hong Kong or with London. It's not the conversation about what are you having, what's the relationship with Perth or Broome right. or Melbourne. It's it's, it's a very Kind of across the sea, uh, and well, it's you know, very it's very transactional. Oh, very right? very transactional. Right, and somehow yeah. it somehow melded with you know even even the kind of historical racism of Australia as the lucky country. Yeah. Right? That, that history, right? That history is still there. I mean, you see it in terms of the uh, the islands where they basically imprison people. Yeah. Uh, who are suspended in terms of their their legal status. Yeah. Right? It's horrible. And yet, and yet, somehow, you know, Asians with a lot of money or Russians with a lot of money, whoever has a lot of money, right? Yeah. So, would you say that that global kind of capitalization and global investments having a real impact, bringing that back into 
the dialogue of public spaces and monuments and public art that is happening in, in these cities. Do you see in your work that having an impact on how public spaces are being used, how, how what monuments are being built, what public art's being built, you know, that relationship between global capitalism and almost it almost driving art and the use of public spaces and things like that well i mean certainly in the art world um you know uh hedge fund uh managers that became are basically billionaires yeah. they uh, make up a sizable percentage of uh the major collectors now yeah right and uh and that's why you have super galleries that cater exclusively to a very small number of super wealthy yeah uh, Right, and they, they they often will buy their art with sight unseen, and they they will store it, and then they will hope that one or a number of them, uh, a number of the works in their collection will uh, accrue exponential value, and then they'll deaccession it in a few years. The yeah. whole thing is still about money, making money. It's not about you know for the love of art or anything like that. Yeah. But you know, in terms of public spaces and so on, I mean. I see it most evidently in terms of private sponsorship, private sponsorship of all kinds of spaces and so on. So, you know, just take the um, Millennium Park in Chicago, which is yeah. by all accounts super successful, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I don't deny that, right? But the whole thing was also a largely, uh, it was a public-private enterprise and every street, every virtually every bench is named after a private company. So you have the yeah. Pritzker, Pavilion, you have the McDonald's Walk, yeah. right? You have you have the Whirlpool, whatever. It's it's insane. You have the Microsoft, yeah. uh, you know, whatever corner. Right? Yeah. And you you can actually go to Google and look up uh, a, ma a map of Millennium Park, and you and you and and you look at it. Well, okay, there's the Dell computer, you know, lawn. <laughs> it's, yeah. I'm not kidding, right? yeah. There's about yeah. twenty or two dozen companies. Who, who bestowed names to it. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, and so, you know, and of course it's all good public relations, right? Right? And and Crown Plaza. Crown yeah. Plaza named after the Crown family, who, who uh, which is part of uh, Millennium Park, named yeah. after the Crown family, who owns uh, Hilton, is the, is the yeah. you know, master company that owns Hilton Hotels. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. right? So I think that's a very uh, bad trend. We saw, we see this certainly with the, uh, you know, tax dollars paid a public arenas and stadia. Yep. Sta yeah. And now named after various companies. It's very strange to me. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And uh, I think it's um, I think it's also very short sighted, right? Yeah. It means there, it means that it gives over entirely uh, the idea of social well being to the logic of uh, of, of money. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting. Money, I mean, and money is also the solution. If yeah. you're short. Uh, if there's a problem to be addressed, then we need to cultivate donors yeah. and money to solve the problem. Yeah, it's a Davos Switzerland mentality. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Uh, and, there, it, and it's one of those, sometimes you are definitely um, on the tightrope balancing where you're going in, in between those two conversations um, and that discourse around money I think can be incredibly interesting. We've had an amazing conversation. There's so much content in here. Um, before we wrap up for the day, is there anything else that you would like to add to our conversation? Well, I uh, I, I think this is like a, a, a moment in history, uh, and I think 
you know, it behooves Canadians, since I'm addressing Canadians, I assume, uh, yeah. to really uh, grapple with that fact and don't and don't um, lose sight of what's at stake right now. Yeah, I think I think we're at a moment whereby, you know, if if we don't uh, wrestle down, you know, increasing uh, carbon yeah. uh, accumulation in 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 in, in uh, the atmosphere, uh, basically it's game over. And yeah. I think you know, the whole uh, environmental crisis is really tied to um, is really tied to a social justice as well, because yeah. the the environmental problems will affect affect darker skinned people more than in a very pernicious way than lighter skinned people, for example. Yeah. And, and so on. so and it will affect the poor much worse than the rich. So yeah. all of the questions are, I think, being. Um, being tackled, at least, uh, at least there seems to be a, a will to address these questions, and I, I implore as many people and as many Canadians to recognize this moment and to see how they can become involved in, 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 in fighting the good fight for social justice and, uh, and greater equity in society. Yeah. Ken, I want to thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciated it. And uh, it was wonderful to spend this um, short period of time with you and um, all the best with the Monument Lab as you move forward. It sounds like there's some phenomenal things on the horizon. Um, and I look forward to kind of keeping an eye and seeing what's going on. So thank you again. Yeah, my pleasure, Annette. Today's episode of the Creative City Canada podcast has been made possible through a partnership between Creative City Network of Canada and McEwen University and with the support of the many members of the CCNC. Thank you, Ken, for sharing your thoughts and time with us today. And thanks to all of you out there who took the time to listen. Continue the conversation online and see more resources and links from today's guest on the CCNC Facebook Twitter, and Instagram accounts. Join us on the Creative City Canada podcast for other interviews with Mr. Ernesto Otone, the UNESCO Assistant Director General for Culture, and Nancy Duxbury, Senior Researcher and Coordinator of the Cities, Cultures, and Architecture Research Group at the Centre for Social Studies from the University of Coimbra, Portugal. If you found this useful and interesting, please comment, share, and subscribe. Until then, continue being creative.